0: I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, Technical Interviews with Prominent Women in Tech. When we open Netflix, we get pretty good recommendations for content that we may like. This is just one example that shows the data-driven mentality at Netflix. Julie Pitt, director of machine learning infrastructure at Netflix, explained other ways in which Netflix is using data and machine learning. We talked about using data for creating content and for changes in the infrastructure. Julie explained how her team is working on improving the workflow of data scientists. We talked about the bottlenecks and the major interface between data scientists and a machine learning platform. Before we get on with the show, I'd like to thank Blind for being a sponsor of the show. Blind is an anonymous app for tech workers to discuss, debate, and talk about compensation, corporate policies, workplace harassment, and more. I've used it for over a year and find it really helpful. There are 50,000 companies active on Blind. Check if yours is there and connect with other employees. Blind is available for iOS, Android, and online at teamblind.com. Go to teamblind.com to download the app. Thank you. Julie Pitt, Director of Machine Learning Infrastructure at Netflix, is joining us today. Julie, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm super excited to be here.
0: Yes, and I'm really excited to have you on the show. And I want to talk about Netflix and the way it's using data and machine learning. Millions of people use Netflix to watch TV shows or movies. One quick way where we see this data driven mentality at Netflix is from its recommendation system, which we see the minute we launch it. We see suggestions of things we might like to watch. But I'm curious, what are other examples in which Netflix is using machine learning and data?
1: Yeah, so there's so many things that touch machine learning and data that you don't even see in the member experience. One of the biggest problems that Netflix tries to solve with data is How do we know how much users are going to watch content that we are about to buy or we're considering buying? And then an even harder problem is, what if that content is not been made yet? How do we know if people are going to like it or not? Uh, That's one problem. A whole nother domain would be, once we've made the content, how do we get it to our customers as fast as possible? how do we know where on our content delivery network we should be putting that content? Chances are the content that would be interesting to members in Spain is quite a bit different from content that would be interesting to members in India. Now, once we've gotten the content close to the members, now the question is what is the quality of experience for the video playback? So you can imagine Netflix has different bit rates, which have different quality of the actual like visual experience, and there's a trade-off. If you always give the member the highest quality bit rate, and their network can't handle that, then what you get is kind of these buffering experiences, which are not great. And so, the the application that run that runs on your phone or on your set-top uh, box will need to adaptive we adjust that quality on the fly. And so one interesting experiment going on right now is using this uh, machine learning technique called reinforcement learning to decide what bit rate to give you. So those are a few types of questions that we're solving. Um, I just wanna touch on a totally different area that we need to solve with data, which is how do we modernize physical studio production. So more recently, in the last couple of years, Netflix has become a movie studio, and it's a non-trivial problem to bring together all the right people, all the right assets in the right place to shoot a movie. And you can imagine that a machine learning model could could really add value over, say, an individual trying to wrangle a giant spreadsheet to solve this type of a problem.
0: That's very interesting what are some of the components for that problem of the studio production? For example, would the model be suggesting, oh, you might want to shoot these two scenes first because they're in the same location and things like that? Or what are some of the things that can be optimized?
1: Right. That would actually be one example is getting all of the the people (laughs) in the same place, even if Let's say, you know, when you look at a season of a show, even if the timeline of the show is, hey, episode, you know, five um, and scene three is taking place in front of the White House, well, perhaps episode 10 (laughs) and scene eight is also taking place in front of the White House with the same characters. And you want to make sure that all of those people are shooting both of those scenes at the same time, even though they're not contiguous. So that's one interesting problem to solve there. Um, Another completely different um, problem that would help with physical production is really understanding what is in the screenplay. So how do you pull out these? So so the discipline that's being used here is called natural language processing or NLP, if you're not familiar with it. It's basically trying to use machines to understand what's actually being said in some body of text. And so, some things you might be able to understand looking at a screenplay would be, hey, um, what would be the budget for this this movie? How you know this scene calls for, let's say, six white horses, and that costs um, this amount of money, right? And this is uh, maybe vetting how well the budget forecast matched to the actual production uh, forecast. So these are you know some examples. It's an active area of experimentation going on right now.
0: So a lot of this, from what I am understanding, is the machine learning models will deal a lot with organizing the logistics and, you know, suggesting ideas based on budget and things like that, right?
1: Yeah, that would be the idea. And, you know, what the machine learning infrastructure team does is we actually don't develop these models ourselves. What we do really, I I think about it as we build a workshop that allows data scientists to build their models more effectively. If you're a software engineer, you know how tough it is to deploy an application and all the things that are involved in that. Writing the code is really the first step. The next question is, is it tested? Uh, is it being built in continuous integration? Is it set up for continuous deployment? Is it being monitored? Is it being, you know, is the alerting? Is it, is it logging? There's so many questions beyond writing the code that a software engineer has to worry about. Now, the same goes for a data science a scientist, only they have slightly different problems around, you know, hey, is the is the data that I'm using trustworthy? If I retrain my model, will I get wildly different results? And so one of the cool things to me about being in this problem space is that the the challenges that I see in front of us for data science kind of mirror the challenges around making software engineers super productive and super collaborative. You know, back 20 years ago, we didn't have um, distributed version control systems like Git and we didn't have cloud computing. We, we couldn't have one engineer stand up an end-to-end web application an hour. And so all of these kind of meta problems are, are on our plate for machine learning infrastructure.
0: Just to clarify, when you said we're not building machine learning models, you mean specifically the machine learning infrastructure division from Netflix, right?
1: The team, the machine learning infrastructure team within Netflix is really about enabling um, a large um, team of data scientists to build their models more effectively, because they have very specialized skills for machine learning. And we don't, we don't think that it requiring everyone to be like a super, super strong engineer with all of this experience operationally makes a lot of sense. And so we want to take that burden off of this team by giving them ways to deliver their models. So the examples that I mentioned previously are really just examples of problems that data scientists would be solving using our platform.
0: What are some of the bottlenecks that you've identified so far in terms of the workflow of a data scientist?
1: One of the biggest challenges is actually one of the most basic, which is how do I get the data into my model? And that problem it, you would think is super simple, but the truth is that it's not. Uh, let's say you're you're joining the company and you have to solve. Kind of a, a, a basic problem. And the first question you ask is, well, where is the data? Well, there's a rich data warehouse with a, a rich data model, I should say, in in um, you know, a data warehouse. And you want to find out, hey, what tables are available to me to solve this problem? How how good is the data quality? How trustworthy is this data? Do other data scientists trust this data? And from there, then you need to kind of ask, well, what kind of modeling techniques am I going to try out, and how do I get the features into my model? And features is really just a fancy way of saying the inputs to the model itself. I don't know if your listeners are super familiar with what a machine learning model is, but I really like to think of it as kind of a mathematical formula that's reverse engineered using data. So rather than just saying, you know, having a mathematical, you know, function, let's say x squared plus 2x plus 1, it's a much, much more complicated function that rather than sort of putting it in a formula, the uh, machine learning algorithm will then learn what that complicated function is and then use that to produce, um, you know, useful predictions. So the features are really just the input to that function.
0: Just expanding on... The example that you're bringing up, for example, in high school math, there would be exercises where you're given two points and your task is to find the slope and what function covers those two points. What you're saying is machine learning is very similar to this, but the function is more complicated.
1: Exactly. And it can have multiple layers. And so, you know, you hear a lot about deep learning, which is more or less Um, a function composed of a function composed of a function, and each layer is sort of another level of function composition.
0: You talked about how one of the main bottlenecks is how do I get data into my model? I want to understand more the workflow of the data scientists. For example, do they start off exploring the data and then they might think of a problem that they can solve with the data, or do they start with the idea of, hey, I want to predict this. Then they begin exploring, oh, let's see what data I can use for this task. Do they look at the data first and then come up with the problem or come up with a problem and then figure out if there's data?
1: Yes. <laughs> I think depending on who you ask, uh, there may, I mean, it's probably probably the look at the data, come up with the problem that'll probably be sort of these creative insights or these serendipitous insights that you get from looking at the data but i would also say the other way around is is probably more typical where hey we need to go solve this problem for example we don't we are launching 800 original titles this year and we want to make sure that they're not all launching you know or or similar titles aren't launching at the same time and how do we how do we space those out properly and then From there, you would go, well, what kind of data is available and really do what's called an exploratory data analysis, where perhaps you're kind of looking at some basic aggregations, you know, sort of simple ones would be sort of mean, median, variance, you know, min, max, that kind of thing. Do it, maybe doing some simple kind of charting to understand the data, uh, understand what the anomalies are. So that would be kind of a good place to start. And then from there, I think you'd want to identify, you know, what type of problem am I solving? Is this a regression problem? And a regression problem would be, I just want to predict some point value, some numeric value, like, for example, how much will a customer or members or member base actually watch a title? Or are we solving a classification problem, such as what's in this image? Is it a cat or a dog? And then from there, you can decide what type of machine learning techniques to explore.
0: From what I am understanding, there at Netflix, there's the machine learning infrastructure team, but it also sounds like there's a team of data scientists or some other division. What is the process for the machine learning infrastructure team to identify the bottlenecks and the areas of improvements? How, how do you begin investigating this?
1: Yeah, so the the cool thing is we have so many different use cases to explore. And so our approach is pretty iterative. What we've kind of done earlier in 2018 is release a version 1.0 of our core platform and the main the major selling point of the platform is that a data scientist could specify a workflow to either train their model or do bulk predictions or bulk scoring as, as it's sometimes called. And that data scientist could run that workflow directly on their laptop, or they could run it in, um, you know, AWS in a distributed fashion. So the big selling point is the same code that you use for your prototype is the code that you can use in the cloud. And furthermore, you can, because some of these workflows take many hours, if you need to debug it or if you need to reproduce it, you can start from where you left off as opposed to you know starting over every time you need to debug. So reproducibility is a big problem. So that all sounds nice, right? And how do we know if that's a good, if, it, if it's working? And the way that we do that is engaging directly with these data science teams to help them get their models onboarded to the platform and along the way we kind of discover what are the what are the most important challenges and a few months back we did kind of realize that getting data into the model was a big problem and that insight led us to start developing you know a data layer that maps between these core data models that are used by many teams and the ml model specific data model that is basically the feature input. And then we tried that out with one project and then started trying it out with another project and soon enough kind of realized okay this is a pattern it seems to be generalizable and so now let's let's productize that so that it can be available for general use.
0: You mentioned version 1.0 of the core platform involves allowing data scientists to create a workflow for the model. What are some of the components of a workflow?
1: Yeah, so depending on you know what state the data in data is in, the first step could actually be the, the ETL step, which is really getting the, the data into kind of the, the format that you need to go into the model. The next step could be is usually feature engineering which is really a fancy say, way of saying kind of doing these basic data transformations. Um, you know, one 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 example might be take data that's in the log domain and move it into the non-log domain or vice versa. So it's applying some kind of mathematical transformation. Or sometimes you need to kind of impute features. Hey, based on these other columns, I can create kind of a new column that's a... Um, using that as using those as kind of input. And once the feature engineering is done, the next step would be actually training the model. And depending on what stage of the life cycle you're at, maybe you would be training many models with different uh, hyper parameters. So if you're talking hyper parameter is really just Something that you, as the data scientist, need to decide a value for in the beginning. Sort of, if you're doing a, a neural network, a hyperparameter might be how many layers is my neural network, or what is the learning rate of of the uh, lo- the gradient step. So uh, that that would be kind of the next step. And the cool thing about our platform is that step might actually really makes sense to parallelize because if you're training on a hundred different variations of hyperparameters, there's no reason to kind of wait for each of those hundred to play out in serial. Rather, you would rather that they happen in parallel and then you kind of compare the model results after that. So you would train the models by really farming the, the task out to Uh, workers, which are each happening in their own container on AWS. And in fact, if you're really into the Netflix open source community, the project that we're using for orchestrating our, our Docker containers is called Titus. So go check that out on the Netflix open source site. And so anyway, once you have done this model training, then you need to kind of cross validate which one was best. And from there, you would perhaps serialize the model into a format that you can load later. And then downstream of that, well, you know, if you just serialize the model and you have a file sitting there, what good is that? You want to actually get that into an application. So from there, what you would want to do is then host the model and we have a model hosting service that really allows a data scientist to specify a REST interface using simple Python code. And so there's no need to involve an engineer to set up a new REST endpoint. And so basically, it would load that model, and then it could do sort of new predictions on the fly. And that's super handy when you have maybe an analyst on the other end of that using an application to kind of do some kind of um, counterfactual, like, oh, well, what if the features were you know, changed in this way? Well, what if the movie had never launched in you know, Europe? How would the predictions change there? So that's the basic workflow that we're talking about. One, one design principle that I should mention about you know, how we've made this accessible to data scientists is we've really focused on allowing them to use the tools that work best for them. And the prevailing um, you know, set of tools is, is in Python. I mean, Python has such a rich ecosystem of machine learning libraries. Now, the other contender is the R language, which has just fantastic tooling uh, using Studio and ability to easily create UIs in uh, our Shiny. And so what we've done is made the platform available both to Python users as well as our users. In the past, there've been debates about perhaps developing the application on top of the JVM and saying, hey, use, use Java and generally speaking, that's a lot to ask for a data scientist, right? They need to be able to focus on modeling rather than, you know, how to add the, the correct boilerplate to make their application work in a pretty complicated environment.
0: So their main focus of the scientist will be to write the code of the model.
1: Exactly. And I mean, you know, the, the to, to be fair, actually writing the code of the model is probably the easiest part um but it's actually you know training and finding what is the right model and what is the right data that is really the hard part
0: yeah also the the shape of the data and things like that exactly can you talk a little bit about what this core platform consists of for example is this a a UI platform or does it integrate with Python? Right.
1: And so how, yeah. So, what is the major interface between the data scientists and the platform? So we started pretty simple and we found that for every data scientist, there's probably three opinions about how data science should be done. And so we're trying to start with the most unopinionated level. And so what that means is we have a a very simple uh, Python class that the, the data scientist can extend and they can implement functions within that class to outline individual steps of the workflow and link those together. So that primary kind of interface for doing the coding is all in Python. Now for interacting with the platform, say, I'd like to run my flow or I'd like to schedule my flow, that's something that happens through a command line interface. So we're currently not in the business of creating UI specifically for this, but the good news is there's already kind of ecosystem support around that, and that is really in Jupyter Notebooks. So the other way that that data scientists could interact with with the platform is looking at flows that have already been run and interface and interacting with those using Jupyter Notebooks. And another step beyond that that we want to do is allow data scientists to create a notebook where each cell in the notebook is a different step of the flow, and then have that be sort of uh, turned into a flow itself. So they could maybe do it entirely in the browser. That would be pretty exciting.
0: You mentioned Jupyter Notebooks as a UI for those listeners that aren't familiar with it can you explain what jupyter notebooks are
1: It's basically an in browser multimedia coding experience so what you know you you pull up a notebook in the browser and what you see are these individual cells kind of like Um, you would be editing um, a wiki page and kind of seeing the preview results right then and there. And so you can edit the code in this case, Python in each individual cell and you can run it right then and there, see the results right then and there. And that really opens up a whole new dimension around perhaps including charts into directly into your um, page. And so Notebooks have become super popular in the data science community because once you create one, the idea or the promise is you can share it with other data scientists. They can see what you actually did and reproduce it. Now, easier said than done, because in order to get another data scientist to sort of, you know, run the same thing that you did, they need to be in an environment where they have the same set of libraries that you used. They need to be an environment where they had the same data that you used. And so some of those problems are the the type of things that we're tackling.
0: Exactly. So what you're saying is if I create a Jupyter notebook and then I'm writing Python code to open a TXT file or some other CSV file and then plot some points and things like that, you're saying if another person wants to run this notebook that I created, they need to have, you know, that TXT file that I'm using and things like that.
1: Right. So they would, so, yeah. And so there's um, Jupyter Jupyter hub, which allows um, sort of sharing and discoverability of notebooks. So that's the other thing is getting to a point where um, one data scientist could discover what another one actually worked on and then run it themselves. So that's also, that's also possible, but again, It's only possible if you have access to the same libraries and the same data, otherwise
0: the code might not run. You were talking about how getting the data into the model is one of the big things, and this first version of the platform explores first the workflow, then you notice this gap in getting the data and transforming it. Are there any other gaps that you found In the process of developing this platform and working with the data scientists
1: so one big thing that we want to work towards i mean yeah there's many i'll pick one one big thing that we want to work towards is when when it comes to developing models um, and let's say you've developed a model that's just the beginning just like as a software engineer writing the code is just the beginning once you have a model it needs to be integrated into application. And not only that, but humans need to trust the model. And as it gets refreshed, as it gets retrained, they need to continue trusting it. And so one thing that we wanna do is provide a model benchmarking kind of framework or model QA framework that would really gauge over time as you update from one model to, to the next, can you sort of trust that those predictions are are more or less stable the other The other problem is let's say you have an application involving a suite of models. Can you develop that such that the human beings consuming those will really understand how a prediction was being generated? so those are some kind of, some big areas that we're looking at,
0: and a lot of this involves preventing regressions in models? For example, what I'm thinking of is, let's say somebody makes a change to the recommendation system, then suddenly I find myself clicking less to those recommendations. Is this what you mean by benchmarking and QA of a model?
1: Yeah, that would certainly be kind of an end result that we would want to kind of avoid having this kind of bad outcome. So you know, there, there could be some more basic metrics going into th- that would maybe be an indicator of whether there's a, a likelihood of degradation. Now, one thing that, that Netflix does well and is going to continue investing in is A B testing. So, in terms of a lot of the models that go into the product, generally speaking, you will have the old version of the model and the new version of the model into two different test cells. And before the new model become impacts the whole member base, it's going to be tested on a much smaller member base. And if there's any kind of major issues, then that, of course, will be pulled.
0: So it sounds that a lot of the principles that we see in software engineering and software design are making their way into the workflow of a data scientist. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, and that's really a problem that I think will take another 10 years to fully solve. But we're getting there.
0: Julie, you worked at Netflix in the early days when it was a DVD business and streaming was just a hypothesis at the company. As an engineer, how did you experience this shift from the DVD business into streaming?
1: Yeah, so I first joined Netflix in 2008. And at that time, there, you could get a DVD subscription, and there was this add on feature of streaming. And I think you could stream on the Roku, Xbox, and maybe on the PC. So it was a a pretty light offering. So as an engineer, you know, I came in, and there was kind of a lot of, of what we would now consider to be kind of legacy systems. So this was kind of java-based applications running on these kind of servlet um servlet containers uh, which is a pretty um kind of hard to evolve uh method of deploying web applications and we also had an oracle database and kind of a lot of assumptions were put in there just around the scale that we were at and um During that time, we had to, there was kind of a, a, a race, right, or a land grab really to get onto every possible screen that was connected to the internet. So I was on the team at the time that was building all the services behind the Netflix play button. So everything that needs to happen between the user clicking play and then the first pixels are showing up on the screen and you would think, oh, that's easy, right? Give them the file. Well, there's actually quite a lot going into that around, um, you know, uh, movie authorization, DRM, security, getting the user to the right CDN location, all of this kind of stuff. So um, during that time, not only were we trying to get on all of these different devices but also these fundamental assumptions about the scale we were at started breaking down while we were trying to figure out AWS AWS at the time was really an unproven technology stack and so it was really kind of exciting and thrilling to see it being proven out during that that time frame
0: so it sounds like a lot of the experience was seeing how this Initial technology choices weren't really scaling, for example the the servlets, and you also mentioned you know the database choice at the time
1: yeah, exactly so I mean it you know oracle you know uh, database can can scale quite a bit, but there was some assumptions in the code about you know um things like unique ids that were about to overflow that we had to to do something about, for example, and you know we can't, you know, now, nowadays, just the scale that we're at, we don't
0: have the luxury of making those sorts of assumptions. Julie, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you about ML infrastructure. Well, thank you. Thanks to Blind for being a new sponsor of the show. Go to teamblind.com. That's teamblind.com to download the app and connect with other employees from your company check it out